to some clinicals and some imaging. Let's settle down and get going before that postprandial slump settles in. I know how it is after lunch as well. So we ended our story yesterday looking at the de- beginning to look at the development of the kidney, remembering as well, rather, the development of the urinary system, remembering all throughout that we have to be able to clear waste and excretion from different aspects. That's why we have the three different portions that start first up at the cervical region and then will end a little lower. Just where we had left our story, we were at a point looking at the mesonephric duct, mesonephric, again the middle portion of the development of the kidney. That duct had moved caudally most and had inserted into the cloaca. And at its point of insertion into the cloaca, we then had a diverticulum that butted out or moved outwards. That diverticulum is known as the ureteric bud. And that ureteric bud will go on to give us the ureter, as the first part of that notation says. Just a reminder that we do have some slides with notations again today, and so you will find that there are some that I will summarize and skip the notations, parts of the notations I'll read with you, and some I'll read outright. But as always, trying to give you the main point of why this slide was included and what we can learn from it going through. So here, if we focus first on the images, we can see we have here a very close view of that mesonephric duct. We can appreciate the stalk of the ureteric bud. And here we can see that that stalk is moving into and meeting with that metonephros nearby, which is called the metonephric blastema. It's the portion that will go on to give us the parenchyma of the kidney the parts that actually take part in the excretory functions. As we see here, the next, in, the next schematic or illustration shows us that there is a further branching of the ureteric bud. And indeed what happens here is that we're seeing the beginnings of the branches that give us the minor calyces and the collecting uh, tubules and so on. And that lower image shows us exactly that. We can appreciate now we have a fully formed ureter We're seeing here the pelvis, that's the widened portion that receives the urine from the major calyces, and the major calyces themselves receive urine from the minor calyces. And I was reminded yesterday that it's really a little bit like your hand, if you think about it, where your fingers are each of the minor calyx, and then coming together you have your major calyces, and they further come together into the pelvis region, and then down the ureter. So if you think of smaller parts draining into a larger area, and then that leaves all together. This slide is included because it shows you in the image a little further on what we expect to see, where we have that extended branching. We see that it's labeled here the metanephric blastema, and it reminds us that though it's not a simple cap anymore, aided, of course, by the branching of the ureteric bud, which is now the ureter and the collecting tubules, what we see, we have this arrangement, this closeness, And in here, we can also appreciate the capillaries that are growing into the renal tubules. These capillaries will go on to become the glomeruli as we know them. When we talked about our blood vessels yesterday, we mentioned to you that there's the renal artery. There are segmental arteries that branch off the renal artery or may insert directly as a segmental artery. And from there, we had interlobar arteries. And then from there, those interlobar arteries turned a corner, became the arcuate arteries, 
and then became the interlobular arteries. Now, the idea of the lobules really started, I believe, from the fetal period as we're seeing here. This kidney does not look exactly as you have seen from the other schematics, or the other images, or even from what you may know. It is bumpy, if you will. But this is, what is, this is the appearance of the kidney in the fetal stage, as that notation tells us. So this is not an abnormal appearance. This is a normal appearance for the fetal kidney. It is appearing to be lobulated. Now, the next notation reminds us or tells us that as the kidneys grow up and as they become more mature, usually those lobulations will disappear because we have a greater amount of connective tissue that's being laid down and as well an increase in the vascularity. Again, taking it back to the original function or the, the function, which is to filter and then remove the waste from the body. So if there is a failure of the maturation of the kidney, then you may find in your cadaver, in the adult, uh, in the adult human, you may find that there are fetal lobulations appearing on the kidney itself. This is a reminder, having gone through some of the structures now, what we will um, achieve. We see here we have the glomeruli with the, or rather glomerulus, that is the only one, with the renal capsule, sorry, the glomerulus with the glomerula capsule, and that gives us the renal corpuscle. Just to say that again, we have the glomerulus, the capillary bed with the glomerula capsule, giving us the renal corpuscle, corpuscle being body. And we can appreciate here, leading off from that, we have the proximal convoluted tubules, and a little further down, we have the distal convoluted tubules after having passed through the loop of Henle. So having mentioned the excretory portion, the conducting portion, the notation reminds us that there are, again, two different functionally different regions, or two different regions, and there are different portions of the nephron that exist in either one. So to read through the second portion, the excretory part, that reminds us or lists for us those portions that are excretory. The Bowman's capsule, PCT for proximal convoluted tubule, the loop of Henle, and the distal convoluted tubule. Also importantly, this notation reminds us that these structures develop from the metanephric blastema. When we talked about the definition, we said the metanephros was after kidney, but not literally meaning after the kidney, but the final structure of the kidney. And here, if we're talking about the structure that we know in the adult or the fully functionally mature, then we know we have to have the portions that will allow for filtration. And here we can see we have the Bowman's capsule, proximal convoluted tubule, loop of Henle, and distal convoluted tubule which I know that once we're out of this lecture and into the lab, you guys will be able to tell me so much more about what these regions do. But continuing on with the anatomy for right now, the conducting portions then develop from the ureteric bud. Let me remind you that they are the collecting tubules, the minor calyces, major calyces, the pelvis of the kidney and the ureter. And again, these are the portions that we had mentioned when we looked at the previous image. The development of the nephron here continues from the structures that we had mentioned, we have, if we read the notation at the side, the metanephric tubules becoming continuous with the ends of the arch-collecting tubules. So basically what we're saying is, remember we have the metanephric blastule, sorry, metanephric blastema at one end, and we have the ureteric bud that's growing towards it. And as the ureteric bud is growing, it's branching into giving us different regions, different areas. And so structures from the metanephric blastema must contact with the structures of the ureteric bud so they can work together. That's exactly what we're saying here. 
The image itself is beautiful because we can see where it's literally labeled site of contact. Metanephric tubule on this side here. And also we're seeing that this portion would have been from the ureteric bud. And here at this lower structure, we're able to see that there is some continuity between the different tubules and appreciating as well the development of the glomerulus. This is a little further along, or rather giving us a little bit more. We can appreciate as well here the metanephric uh, blastema, portions from the metanephric blastema meeting with the ureteric bud. And seeing here we have the development of the distal convoluted tubule, proximal convoluted tubule, the loop of Henle, and of course having the glomerulus that allows for the filtration of the blood. Renal question? Blastema? Yes. So the question is if this is all embedded in the metanephric blastema? Yes, because remember, this is all going to be happening at the same time everywhere in numerous, numerous amounts. Two slides ago, we talked about there being millions of nephrons present at birth. And it is when we look at the kidney, what you're looking at is the presence of the nephrons. But because we don't have microscopic vision, we can't see each one individually. So we see the kidney because of the nephrons. Okay, so this, on this image, there's a lovely pinkish background. That's artistic license, because if we showed you all of them, we would see absolutely nothing. Okay? <laughs> meant to represent the capsule. Okay, so the dark purple over the top is meant to represent the capsule. I'm going to move on now, but if we have any questions after this, I'll be here in the break, and we can discuss that then. This slide reminds us that there is an ascent of the kidneys. When we looked at, if you go back in your packets, because you do have them, I'm not going to click through and create some confusion. But if you look back, you remember we saw that embryo, and at the inferior aspect of the embryo, closer to the caudal region, we saw that's where the kidneys developed. We saw the ureteric bud coming out and the blastemic cap, the metanephric cap sitting right there. But we know that has to move up to a position where it lies on the posterior abdominal wall, somewhere between T11 to around about L2. And so there is a movement upward of the kidneys as they grow, as well as elongation of the ureteric bud, again, as it branches, giving us that long ureter. So in the ascent here, there's two things to remember. One, of course, that is going up. The other, that the hyla, the portions where the blood vessels go in and out, they actually face ventrally originally, but there is a rotation, 90-degree rotation medially, and then the hyla face medial. And as they face medial, then they begin to rise. As they begin to rise, their blood vessels change. First, they are innervated by the common iliac vessels, as seen here on this image. Eventually, as it continues to rise, there are different vessels that will lead off from the abdominal aorta to move to uh, give supply to the kidney at each stage of its ascent. If we move on to the... This slide, this slide shows us a little bit better the blood vessels. Those are the dotted lines that are uh, shown here on the images, whereas the line that's in red at the moment is the ureter. So again, a little bit of artistic license. We're very used to seeing our blood vessels in red, and so it's tempting to think these are blood vessels. But if we examine the image here and use it for our learning, we can see that these structures are the kidneys, and these structures that lead down leads into a reservoir. That reservoir, therefore, is the bladder. So these structures in red here are the ureter. What we're seeing in the dotted lines are the sites of the formal renal arteries. 
they move up until they contact the suprarenal, arch, suprarenal gland, and that's where they sit. Now, we had also mentioned before that there may be some accessory renal arteries, and we can begin to understand then if those vessels are supposed to degenerate, some of them may not do so, and so they remain to supply the kidney even in its final location. Now, remember that renal arteries are end arteries, especially we call them the segmental arteries. We say that they are end arteries, which means that where we find a portion or an artery going to a portion of the kidney, that portion is supplied by that artery and cannot be supplied by another artery. So that artery is very much important for that segment. Now, another interesting thing to point out here on this slide, or at least I hope you think it's as interesting as I do, is that we see here that lower uh, pole of the kidney receiving an accessory renal artery. And what we're appreciating here as well is that there is an obstruction by that renal artery. This doesn't always happen, but of course it could happen. And if that does occur, the ureter being obstructed, we then get an enlargement of the pelvis because urine cannot flow out freely. We then get an enlargement of the collecting structures and get an enlargement of the kidney known as hydronephrosis. So the second notation tells us in a summary, accessory arteries that enter the lower pole cross over the ureter and can, as in may it's possible, cause an obstruction leading to hydronephrosis. For renal agenesis, we're looking here at either an early degeneration uh, or a failure of the formation of the ureteric bud. If the ureteric bud does not grow out, it does not contact with the metanephric blastema, therefore there's no signal to continue to form the kidney. And what we're seeing here on the image with the aorta, the inferior vena cava, is looking at a unilateral renal agenesis. This unilateral renal agenesis here shows us one well-formed kidney. We see the ureter contacting the bladder, but there is no similar structure on the other side. And here we can see that if there had been an absent ureteric bud, then the metanephric blastema would not have the signals to make the changes in the tubules as we had seen previously. The unilateral renal agenesis is more common in boys, and the left kidney is usually the one that's absent. It is asymptomatic, or it can be asymptomatic if the other kidney is normal, so there's a there may be a compensatory hypertrophy in the other kidney. And so it's a little bit bigger because it has to filter all of the blood on its own, but if it's working just fine, someone may actually never know. If, however, there's a bilateral renal agenesis, this is a condition that's not compatible with life, there will be noticed that in the ultrasound scans, they'll say, oh, there's a little less amniotic fluid, and so the term goes down the paper of oligohydramnios, oligo being little hydramnios for the fluid. There's also going to be pulmonary hypoplasia, which I know that you've studied before when you talked about your thorax lectures, the fact that the fetus as it's developing must swallow, because there's no inhaling, must swallow the amniotic fluid and it must pass through. If it does not do so, the lungs do not develop and certainly the kidneys do not develop. And if the kidneys, well, we don't have kidneys, so that's why we're not producing any more of the amniotic fluid. There's no going through. I went back to thorax lecture for a moment. But to recap that, if we have no kidneys, then the fetus in swallowing will not be able to produce any fluid to take part in the amniotic fluid and therefore we will have less amniotic fluid at any age that we should have. The pulmonary hypoplasia, again, we'd mentioned before. Potter's sequence is 
this condition, there may be a few other uh, situations or conditions associated with them, such as the typical facies or even clubbed feet and other anomalies that may occur together as a result of the bilateral renal agenesis. It is possible to have a supernumerary kidney, which is actually quite rare. If it is present, it may have its own separate ureter, um, and it could be possible that it arises as a result of two separate ureteric buds on that side, as opposed to having a split of the ureteric bud. So having talked about the ascent of the kidneys on either side, if for some reason there's a fusion of the lower poles of those kidneys, then it means that as it begins to rise, it actually cannot go up and cannot ascend properly because it becomes stopped by the inferior mesenteric artery. And so we call this a horseshoe kidney because it looks sort of U-shaped because there are two kidneys in the inferior poles being fused. Again, this is something that's not usually problematic. People with horseshoe kidneys probably don't usually realize until such time as they go for an abdominal ultrasound or some sort of uh, imaging study targeted to looking at the pelvic region or abdominal region, and then it may become evident. In terms of the ureters, we've discussed quite a bit of this before. If we jump down to looking at blood supply, we had mentioned that the, the renal artery gives rise to a ureteric artery, and so we know that the blood supply is from the renal arteries. It may come off the abdominal aorta, and as well, the iliac arteries as it passes further down. There are three constrictions of the ureter that we must mention, because these are places where we can have obstruction by renal stones. And so the first of these is at the ureteropelvic junction. If we recall what we saw, the pelvis of the kidney going down towards the ureter, there we know we have the first point of possible constriction. The second would be at the point where the ureters cross the brim of the pelvic outlet, and I'll show you again on the images upcoming. And the third would be the passage throughout the wall of the urinary bladder, or through the wall of the urinary bladder. So that's the utero-vesical junction. So here I have a look at their possible sites of constriction. We see we have the utero-pelvic junction, again going from pelvis down into the ureter. The second being where it crosses the iliac artery, that's crossing the common, well, the common or the external iliac artery at this point. And the third being just at the point of entry into the bladder, where we do have small amounts of urine being uh, introduced into the bladder at a time. It does not freely flow in. And so again, this is a point where it's a narrowed portion and we could well have small amounts being uh, put in at a time, which means that the stone could get blocked here. So looking at the course of the ureter in the female pelvis, first and foremost, this image, we're looking down into the pelvis from an anterior view. So this here is the uh, anterior, from a superior view. So this here is the anterior surface, and this is the posterior. Here we have the bladder just behind the pubic symphysis. Note that we have the ureter that crosses into the true pelvis here, and as it crosses to go to the posterior aspect of the bladder, we also have that ureter being crossed by the uterine artery and vein. This is called water under the bridge because the ureter uh, carrying the so-called water that we pass or pass out is being uh, crossed by the bridge that's the uterine artery and vein. It's an important thing to remember and to discuss because when 
females have to have a hysterectomy. The obstetrician in question would have to make sure that he or she can adequately or properly identify the difference between these vessels. Because remember, they will not be colored, these colors, on the real patient, as you can tell from the cadaver. And so if, for example, there's an incident and the ureter becomes cut, then of course we know that we have no urine, or ligated rather, so it's not that the urine is pouring into the peritoneum or into the pelvic region, but if it becomes ligated so no fluid comes down, no urine comes down, what happens then is we have that same sort of increase in fluid in the system, and so we can get as well the hydronephrosis and other complications within. Coming on to the male, we do discuss a little bit of water under the bridge in the males and to show you the similarities in terms of what structures pass where or the, the homolog... Homolo I lost track of that word there. Let's just stick with similarities between the male and the female. And so if I show you here, we have the water under the bridge in the male. Here the structures are the ductus deferens as it comes up from the somatic cord carrying the somatozoa. And so this ductus deferens, as it enters the pelvic region, it aims posteriorly towards the seminal vesicles where it will join and then go into the prostate gland. It does all this in the posterior aspect of the bladder. As it is performing this move, we also have the ureter that's coming down, crossing the pelvic brim, as we see here, lying along or running along the portion of the wall and then entering into the posterior side of the bladder. And so we see here we have that cross of ductus deferens over ureter under. It is, again, an important structure to remember. Um, oh, the polling is open. Okay, so turning point is not my friend this afternoon. We're going to just calm down for a bit because the 120 seconds would interrupt with my delivery. Okay, so we'll stop the countdown at 50 seconds, so we're not going to go down to zero. So for anyone who has not clicked in, please click in now. We have three more seconds. And let's see what we think the answers are. Yes, yeah, so having just discussed this, we remember the relationships between the two and why it's very important, that sort of idea of water under the bridge. It is the ureter that we want to be careful to avoid. Here, going back to the idea of the bifid ureter, if there's an incomplete division of the ureteric bud early, then you can get two different structures that move on up, and it is possible that you can have two different, uh, sorry, they will go to the same kidney. It's not that you have a different metanephric blastema. There's still the one uh, cap, and the bifid ureter would go towards that. It is also possible to have what is known as cross-fused ectopia, it's not just that the kidney is in an abnormal site, which is the ectopia portion, but that it has crossed over and fused 
with the other kidney. So the name is very descriptive. And in here what we're seeing is that the left kidney is fused with the right, and that usually occurs when in the pelvis, and then it ascends together. So it may be that the person does not necessarily know, yet again, as long as it's functioning well. These may be found incidentally on studies. And one, when the image is done or the image is performed, they may say, oh, there's a bifid ureter because it looks as though there are two ureters to the one kidney. Then you go, there's no other kidney, and that kidney looks a little bit big. So then um, it can become possible to realize that it's a fused, crossed-fused ectopic rather than bifid ureter. Going on to the urinary bladder, we know it's the muscular organ for the collection. It's the reservoir for the urine and located just posterior to the pubic symphysis area, as we had seen before. I like this statement. When it's empty, it's shaped like a pyramid that's fallen on its side. It sounds very majestic. The thing to remember about the, the bladder is that it really helps us be very socially appropriate, one of the things that helps us with that. Um, and so... It does house the urine until we are in a position where we can actually go to void. This is something that has to be learned as infants. Babies do not have this behavior, largely because their uh, innovations of their nerves have not yet taken place. And as they become a little older, behavior helps them with learning when to void because we have a difference in the internal and external sphincters, as we'll talk about on the next few slides. The relationships are different in the males and the females, which we will go on to see as well. The blood supply is the superior, or rather blood supply made up by two different vessels, the superior and inferior vesicular arteries. The lymphatic drainage goes back towards the external iliac lymph nodes. Let's go on to look at those relationships. Here we're talking about the urinary bladder relationships in the female. Now, for anyone who has watched a sitcom with a female who's pregnant or who has known a female who's been pregnant or a female who has been pregnant, you know that somewhere in that pregnancy that female complains that she needs to urinate very often. And this is one of the reasons why. We see here that the uterus lies just over the bladder. In its antiflated antiflex state, it sits over the superior aspect of the bladder. Now, in the later stages of pregnancy, when the uterus expands in his gravid state, and Junior decides he wants to either play uh, drums with his head or with his feet, then the bladder can be um, sort of contacted, and that may make the female feel as though she needs to go, but also the fact that there is a gravid uterus in the abdominal cavity, everything gets pushed to the side, and so the capacity of the bladder is less in that state, so she will, need, she will feel that she needs to go more often. But again, pointing out here for you, the pubic symphysis anteriorly and just posteriorly the bladder. In the male, we see again pubic symphysis anteriorly, bladder posteriorly. But an important structure to notice here is that of the prostate gland. As you go into your next modules, that'd be next term where you talk about reproductive, you'll see a lot more about the prostate gland and how it functions and why it's important. But I'll tell you here as we're going through that the prostate gland may enlarge, uh, the stroma of it may enlarge and give or produce rather benign prostatic hyperplasia. And with this localized form of increased connective tissue, what can happen is the urethra seen here going from the bladder through to the external environment could become compressed. In which case, if that becomes compressed, we can have or the male can then present with um, pains, uh, severe pains, he may complain of, even before that point, if it's before point of complete blockage, he may complain of 
increased feeling of needing to go to the toilet, having to get up several times at night to urinate, um, or feeling that he has not completely voided his bladder. And if those are the things that your patient is complaining of, you need to think of the relationship with the prostate and the bladder. I should add as well that um, the bladder can extend quite high into the uh, abdominal pelvic cavity. And in children, it is considered a, uh, it can be considered an abdominal, an abdominal organ because as children have smaller body statuses, when their bladder expands, it can expand into the abdominal cavity. I will say to you that I once had a patient who did not, he had a spinal injury and so he did not have any uh, feeling lower in, in, the lower, in the lower aspect of his body. And so there was the morning I went to examine him and I found that there was this mass at the umbilical region. And I thought, well, I know he's male, so he's definitely not pregnant and why did this mass arrive overnight? And when I checked his catheter bag, I realized that there was no urine in it, which meant that that mass was because of the urine that had not been able to pass. And so after having passed the catheter, the mass did go away. So it's a reminder that if a patient has sensations, it is an incredibly painful encounter, but it's an important thing to let you know because you can see the extent at which that bladder can expand. We're looking here at the ligaments of the urinary bladder. We have the these ligaments are essentially condensations of the pelvic fascia, so that's a loose connective tissue that becomes thickened in this region. If we have a female in question, then those ligaments are the pubovesicle, and if we have a male, they are the pubo-prostatic ligaments. Pubovesicle going from the pubic symphysis towards the bladder itself, pubo-prostatic in the male, telling us it's going from the pubic symphysis to the uh, prostate inferiorly. And what they help to do is hold the neck of the bladder in place and help to support it should it have to expand at all for holding urine. The interior aspect of the urinary bladder, we can see that there's the trigone, where it's a smooth area of the bladder in the non-distended state. And trigone should say, okay, there are three structures in there, try for three. And so there are the two ureteral orifices, which open into the posterior lateral aspect of the bladder. Look how tiny they are. That's the portions in which the ureter allows for the uh, extrusion of the, of the urine. Here we see the urethra, which commences at the neck of the bladder and passing through. Again, this is male. We can see the presence here of the prostate gland. So looking further at the bladder itself, we can see that there, it is the detrusor muscle, and that's the smooth muscle of the bladder wall. When it is relaxed, it allows filling, and when it contracts, it will empty. So there's the... Uh, also the autonomic innovation that we must discuss on the next few slides coming up. The internal urethral sphincter is located at the neck of the bladder. It is a continuation of the detrusor muscle. It is also under autonomic innovation, and we will discuss their functions coming up in just a moment as well. Here is one of our sphincters, one of our muscles that I say always keeps us socially accurate because we have here the sphincter urethrae. It's the external urethral sphincter. It's located in the deep perennial space, and it is skeletal muscle, which lets us know that it is under somatic innovation. So when you were babies, or when babies are, when, when people are little... <laughs> okay, so let's start that sentence again. In babies, 
In babies, we have the internal urethral sphincter being under autonomic control, which means that when the detrusor muscle expands after a certain point, we then get contraction, the internal urethral sphincter open, the external is not yet under control, and so that's also open, and urine passes out. Again, the idea of being socially accurate is that you may drink quite a lot, it's cold and here you go, I'm waiting for that other question, I'm not going to go just yet. So even though your internal sphincter says, we really should go because that detrusor is quite wide, you say to your external, no, I'm waiting for that question. And so we're going to wait here and make sure that we go when we want to and not on demand. So to look at the innovation now, we have the relaxation by the sympathetic nervous system, which will allow the filling. And when we are under parasympathetic innovation, then we get contraction. Now, as always, when we look at the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, think of what they will do in each particular organ. Think first of what they do overall and then bring it to each organ. We know that when we are under the sympathetic nervous system innovation, it is called the fight and flight hormone. And so we're thinking of running away from that famed saber-toothed tiger. At that time, you will not want to stop to urinate. So the idea is that you will have a closure of the internal urinary, the internal urethral sphincter, and as well a relaxation of the detrusor muscle. However, the parasympathetic nervous system is considered the rest and digest, and so we can have here contraction to allow for micturation, to bring about micturation, coupled with the relaxation of the internal urethral sphincter. The external urethral sphincter is innervated by the pudendal nerve, that's our somatic nerve. So mention again the innovation. The sensation of filling or fullness, that stretch, is accomplished by the visceral afferents that accompany the parasympathetic nervous system and the pelvic splanchnics. As we had seen on the last slide, the contraction of the muscles in the organ wall, that is the contraction of the detrusor muscle, which is the wall of the bladder, that's accomplished by the pelvic splanchnics and parasympathetic nervous system. The internal sphincter, which we mentioned is smooth muscle. Parasympathetics will cause a relaxation, because if it's a sphincter, we want it open that allows things to pass, whereas the sympathetics will allow contraction or closure of the sphincter. The external sphincter, which is the skeletal muscle, again, under voluntary control. We had mentioned before the infants with the no control of the voiding. Just to recap, that conscious control of both of these are learned over time. And adults have cortical control of the external sphincters and that the voiding reflex is a learned reflex. So there's control of the bladder and also of the rectum. So the innovation of the bladder, there's a dense autonomic plexus that surrounds the bladder. There's parasympathetic and sympathetic innovations, as we can tell, because we've discussed the different actions of those innovations on the different structures. We can see that the sympathetic innovation is largely from the hypogastric plexus, bringing the nerves down towards the pelvic region. That flows in from T10 to 12 and L1 and 2. So the thing to remember is that the visceral afferents for pain in this region travel with the parasympathetic nerves. The visceral afferents for distension also travel with the parasympathetic nerves. And the pudendal nerve 
is our voluntary, or rather goes to our voluntary muscle, um, goes to the skeletal muscle, which is under voluntary control. The little notation reminds us here that pain from the bladder refers to the perineum, is that area between the vagina and the anus in females, or between the scrotum and the penis in males, and that may also involve an increase in urinary frequency due to increased urinary urge. So if there is pain in the region, you may ask your patient, do you also have the need to go more often? And that could also lead you to different conclusions as to what may be going on. This is an interesting image because it shows us here the different ganglia in the abdomen, but it shows us as well the hypogastric plexus. And important for this section, the inferior hypogastric plexus here in the pelvis, and these structures are the hypogastric nerves that bring down the sympathetics. So again, on this image, we're seeing the different ganglia from the abdominal region. Here we can see that we have the superior hypogastric plexus. That then leads into the hypogastric nerve, which brings in sympathetic information from above into that inferior hypogastric plexus, basically our pelvic plexus. So to read the notation together, the sympathetic innervation of the kidneys, ureters, and bladder are derived from the lesser and least thoracic and splanchnic lumbar nerves. The ureters receive their innervation segmentally. That first part of the notation is not a surprise. It's a recap of what we had discussed just a moment ago, where we said the innervation comes from T10 to 12, which would be the lesser and least thoracic splanchnic nerves, and L1 and L2, should be the lumbar splanchnic nerves. So the bladder development in week four to seven, the cloaca divides into the urogenital sinus anteriorly, and therefore there's the anal canal posteriorly. That urorectal septum will also divide the two structures. And the urogenital sinus itself has three different portions. The upper portion becomes the vesicular portion, is the largest and forms the bladder. The middle portion is the thin pelvic part that gives rise to the prostatic and membranous portions of the male urethra and the entire female urethra. And the third part, or the final part, is the phallic portion, and it gives rise to most of the penile urethra in males. We'll see that again on the next image. We mentioned before the trigone, where there are two ureteric orifices that come in, and the inferior part, port, inferior part is that of the urethra. And so here we can see that that trigone develops where we had the ureteric buds that came in. Well, before they developed, we had the mesonephric ducts that absorb into the posterior part. Then we got the diverticular, that is the ureteric bud. If we go on to this slide, the first A shows us the position of the urorectal septum. This would have been the region of the cloaca. Here we have the urorectal septum, and that gives us urogenital sinus and also the anal canal in this region or posteriorly. Going on to C, what we're appreciating here is a further separation between the two different regions. And we can see that we have the vesicle part. Vesicle, again, the sack of water, and so this goes on to give rise to the bladder. The uh, pelvic part here and the phallic portion, the pelvic part giving rise to the prostate and the membranous urethra of the male and the entire urethra of the female and the phallic part giving rise to the penile urethra of the male. Here we can see this inferior, sorry, this lower image showing us again the further extension of that ureteric bud 
the association with the metanephros, we can see that there's a branching in here. Remembering the nephrons will be developing, the tubules developing in the metanephros in here. And as well, we see the urinary bladder. Remember that the urinary bladder was continuous with the urecus, uh, or the allantois rather, and when that obliterates, it gives rise to the urecus that moves on the internal aspect of the anterior abdominal wall. The female urethra is much shorter than the male urethra. It's about four centimeters in length, and it is the external urethral orifice that opens into the vestibule of the vagina. And one of the things to remember, because that uh, female urethra is so much shorter, there is a greater chance of ascending UTIs in females than you'll find in males. It's also because there's the proximity of the vagina to the anus. It's important to be able to have proper techniques when wiping and for hygiene. And during intercourse, there may be, depending on how vigorous it is, there may be some damage to the uh, urethra. The male urethra we see here, first in cross-section and then coronal, we can appreciate that there is the bladder, of course, and just inferior to that we find the prostate. As the urethra passes through the prostate, it is then the prostatic urethra. And as it passes just inferior to that, it becomes the membranous urethra. That's so known because it passes through a small portion of muscle that functions as the external urethral sphincter. And that hair is in the region of the deep perineal pouch. The next portion that we will see is that of the penile or spongy urethra. And note before we go on any further in this male urethra that there is a bend seen here just after that membranous portion. Okay? This is not something we had seen with the female urethra because it's straight and short. So for catheterization, it's an important thing to understand the differences in the anatomy. If a female urethra is short and straight, it's clearly much easier to pass a catheter much easier as a comparative term. For the male, however, if there is a longer urethra and a very defined bend that is fixed, then it becomes more difficult. So the first bend that you may see in the male is in the spongy urethra, and that can be manipulated by moving the penis to a point where the catheter can be passed easily. The second bend is not as easily fixed, or sorry, not as easily manipulated because the bend is a fixed bend. And it is important when passing the catheter to go very gently, very carefully, because if the catheter is forced, the catheter can go out of the urethra and into the area of the bulb of the penis. That trauma would lead to some uh, blood in the urine and possibly some sounds from your patient. Sounds of great displeasure. Now, the thing to remember as well is that um, usually these, are, these procedures are performed where we need to know what's happening with the patient. It's very important. We've talked about the kidney itself and how it has to perform the function of making urine and passing it out. And I know that you would have had your physiology as well, so you're understanding just why it's important to know what's coming out, why we have that output, and how we use it as an important marker for understanding what's happening with the body. Just waiting to bring up the countdown because I'm fairly certain this one says 72 seconds.
I do have another question after this one, in case anyone's interested in having a look at that as well. So yes, this is the horseshoe kidney. Remember, if they're fused at the inferior poles, that means they're located in the lower abdomen. They had begun to rise at some point, but they were stopped by the inferior mesenteric artery. So during the prenatal examination of a 24-year-old woman, the gynecologist notices a lower than expected amount of amniotic fluid. Lower than expected. We're in the last five seconds. I'm sure everyone has clicked in by now. So let's see what you thought of the answer. Yes, it is bilateral renal agenesis. Remember, as we had discussed, without the kidneys, there is no output to contribute to that amniotic fluid. A horseshoe kidney would likely be unnoticed, again, as long as everything's functioning well. And most cases, people do not know until they go for a study and then they realize. Pulmonary hyperplasia would be at the end rather than at the beginning. And um, the other two won't exactly fit this scenario. So let's take a break. Let's come back in at five minutes to the... Pulmonary hyperplasia may go along with, but it not, may not be solely as a result of... Okay, so it's the sensation pulmonary hyperplasia. It's in the profile. It's one of the things you'll see as well. But the first reason is because the kidneys aren't there. Okay? All right, if you have any questions, starting at 5 to 3. We'll start at 5 to 3.